Good evening, Tinakoto. Welcome to our webinar tonight. I hope you have had an enjoyable day today, an extra holiday for most, but I am sure some of us have been on duty. This evening, our haematology session is run by the section of Rural Health General Practice Department, University of Otago, and supported by the Rural Hospital Medicine Division of the Rural New Zealand College of General Practice. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Elaine Nottenbelt, a consultant haematologist who works at Palmerston North Hospital and at MedLab Central. She also has close links with Hawara Hospital, doing much case-based learning with the doctors there. She is originally from Zimbabwe, where from our discussion, she has developed a focused, concise and practical approach that we will all appreciate in rural practice. Thank you very much for your time this evening, Elaine. You are very, very welcome, and I really do appreciate it on this day off. Well, I really appreciate you all turning out on a Monday night of a holiday. Yeah. It's been a glorious day here, but I did take a moment to watch New Zealand's acknowledgement of Her Majesty and to welcome in King Charles III. I guess I formed a lovely relationship with the staff at Hara Hospital over my lunch hour to just chat really and I think the format kind of works partly because I'm quite time poor and I don't have time to endlessly prepare fantastic powerpoints and my skills there are quite low but I love hematology and I love it for the fact that you see the patient you do the diagnostic test which may or may not include a bone marrow and then you see them back in clinic give them the good or bad news, and then make a treatment plan. And a lot of my patients are with me for like 25, 30 years. And I find all that quite rewarding. And I think you've all been sent the algorithm for the approach to anemia. And I encourage you to get that in your lizard brain and adapt it to suit your clinical practice and the kind of patients that you see. I originally designed this because I did some work in a laboratory in Vietnam where we still have a relationship, just trying to help the laboratory staff have an easier way of helping the doctors there as to how to approach anemia. And thanks for those who've taken the trouble to send in questions and things. The referral patterns that we get are very much in keeping with the questions that you're asking. So I think we're in for a fun evening and welcome the feedback on uh, what uh, Lucinda tells me is a different, more sort of informal format, which I hope will be entertaining since you've given up your Monday night. I'm sure it will, Elaine. I sent out a memo for, you know, specialists to help us with these webinars and you got a ringing endorsement. So obviously the format <laughs> you use in Harwater is very, very well appreciated and well received. So yep. I'm sure it's going to be great. Yep. So should we just start with the cases and things, yeah. should we? Yeah, go for it. Yep. So basically, this is focusing on anemia and iron studies by request. And so we're just going to zap into a case and thanks to Mark for providing the cases. When you're asked to provide cases, I'm sure none of you can even think of a case of anemia or iron that you've ever had. So, or maybe you just sort of time poor. So I think we all see in practice uh, tired 40-year-old females with a zillion causes for that. And it doesn't take much in the history to realize that she's a busy lady. She's got five children. She also has menorrhagia. Uh, and in some communities, this is just thought to be normal. So she has a blood test. And it's interesting to notice here. Um, I can't get your feedback to notice. So I'll just give you a couple of minutes to have a look at it so you can make your own thoughts about what might be wrong or unusual. Obviously, on the history alone, you're going to ask for iron studies. So what, what is a bit unusual? What other tests might you request after the clinical history? And what is the treatment you would offer? So I don't know if you noticed, but she was quite microcytic with a low MCV and a low MCH. But her hemoglobin was 110, which is surprisingly good for somebody with that history. And that might prompt you to think, well, I mean, probably a hemoglobin of 110, if you saw that, you wouldn't make too much fuss about it. But you can be incredibly, incredibly tired and just with a low ferritin, even if you've got a reasonably normal hemoglobin. So in terms of the other tests, I think you need to uh, add B12 and folate. She's a busy mum. She's probably 
uh, socioeconomically not able to source a lot of meat. She might not have fresh fruit and vegetables. So just remember that there are other causes other than the iron deficiency. In this case, you don't really have to investigate the cause of the iron deficiency um, because it's pretty obvious from the clinical history. So she does not need to be referred for colonoscopy, which seems to be the reflex thing for iron deficiency, obviously. So anyway, she gets Ferinject. Now, did she need Ferinject? To get Ferinject, you have to show an intolerance to oral iron or lack of response to oral iron. And maybe her reasonable hemoglobin suggested that she had tried some iron in the past. So just remember that if you're referring or signing up for Ferinject, you must demonstrate that you investigated the cause and that you've tried oral iron. And quite honestly, oral iron can be quite well tolerated if you just take two or three a week. And you can catch up quite nicely if you're not in that super severe setting. So two months after her pharynge, she is sorted. Her MCH is still a little bit on the low side, which is interesting. So the question is, is that job done? And what does this result tell you and exclude? And that's because in certain populations, there is a background thalassemia. And this is where looking at your previous results helps a lot because sometimes people might have a mild anemia and a microcytosis that goes back as long as forever. In which case, and I can't ask you, but hopefully in your head, you're looking at the algorithm for microcytic anemias. And if it's not iron deficiency, there's thalassemias in there. And with our populations now, we see a lot of thalassemias and a lot of the Maori population have an alpha thalassemia tray, which can give them a microcytosis. So although that sort of seems on the face of it quite simple, and I would say here, I just hope this poor lady had a B12 and folate level done as well. She responded brilliantly. So that's all quite encouraging, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you just go back, Elaine, to your first slide with the results? Yep. And you may be going to talk about some of this, but I just wanted to, in my lab, we often just use a ferritin. Like that's what we have been told oh, yes, to use just yes, as a ferritin yes, and not to yes. do a full iron panel. So what like would you I'm, to say I'm, to that? Or do you do that? In... Um, if it's straightforward iron deficiency, I don't ask for full iron studies if it's a menorrhagic setting. But I think that if it comes back with a low normal ferritin and you haven't done a saturation, you kind of kick yourself. Can you explain around, yeah, the... Uh, importance and what's the usefulness of the full and what it differentiates yeah, for you? Yeah. So basically fer ferritin actually is not, it's a sort of very uh, ten downstream effect indication of your iron stores, but ferritin goes up as an acute phase reactant, obviously. Mm. And if you've got an associated chronic disease or you're going to get a low, iron deficiency should have a low saturation and in chronic disease, less so. So you're looking for that. And the other thing back on the full blood count, if you look at the MCH as well as the MCV, a low MCH is really indicative of iron deficiency as well. So right. I, I think because you're sort of all watching the lab budget, I don't know how your lab tests are, how much you're controlled, but the cost isn't the person taking the blood and the blood in the tube and getting to the laboratory. The actual cost of the test in the laboratory, whether you add a saturation or not, is very low. Okay. And if you have to go back and do a second test, you know, that's inconvenient for the patient. And so I always feel, particularly if you're investigating a fatigue patient who may also have iron overload, <laughs> where you definitely need your saturation, I would encourage you to do the full iron studies. Okay. And what's the benefit or in what situation would you use a soluble transferrin receptor? I don't. Never use it? No. And we've had a chat about that amongst the laboratory hematologists. And it's occasionally useful if you're really dithering about what the cause of the uh, anemia might be and you've got equivocal iron studies. I have never requested one. <laughs> I've been around a long time. And it's nice. a bit like haptoglobins. I don't request many of those either. Yeah. So I think it's a it's a fancy test. 
but I don't know that it adds, it adds a lot, much. except for very rarely. And now that'll be an expensive test. Mm. So you're much better to use the things that you've already got, which is your MCH uh, and your percentage saturation. <laughs> and sometimes just a jolly trial of iron, you know. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, good old school. Good old school stuff, you know. <laughs> and then not missing. Remember, if somebody's chronically iron deficient, you get a, like an atrophic gastritis, so you can get B12 deficiency from long-standing iron deficiency and vice versa. If you've got B12 deficiency from atrophic gastritis, you don't absorb iron. So they're those sort of reciprocal things. Our lab are quite reluctant to do folic acids. And I think with dietary stress at the moment with, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables being hard to get and poor diet choices as well, folate levels can be really, really low. Um, They've got to be interpreted with caution. We used to do the red cell folate and then they just do the serum folate. And that, of course, is very, it's a lot of variations. But honestly, if you've got a folate of three, <laughs> you're likely to be folate deficient. And then you would do that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure does. Mark's arrived. Can you see a smiley face? Hi, Mark. Kia ora, everyone. So Mark is one of the rural hospital doctors in Harwara and he's helping us with this evening's session. So like most of us got sidelined by children or others. So very welcome. Great to see you. This is a case from Mark. So thank you, Mark. This is a three-year-old girl going to a GP with a viral type illness. She's got a pale complexion and it's unclear if it's new as she has got ginger hair and she's possibly jaundice. Good old clinical exam, hey? I'm not quite sure. I suppose people who do have ginger hair do have often a pale complexion. But in my day, we used to do this. Looked at the conjunctiva as a, that was our, in Africa, that was our hemoglobinometer. When, when I look for anemia in my patients, I look for pallor in the palm creases, which is also quite a useful thing. So she's possibly jaundiced. And I thought, well, this is a time to think, what else would you ask the mother? Is this worth investigating? And what tests would you request? So just a little moment to think about that. And tests were requested. And you can see she's anemic. Now, it's important to notice that the hemoglobin range in children is a little less. That's also true in young children of lymphocytes. If you look at the lymphocytes there, the lymphocytes can be up to eight and the monocytes are higher. So when you're dealing with children, do take note of the normal range because it, it may seem alarming, but it's not. So in an adult, a hemoglobin 95 is quite low, but in this, this little girl, it's only mildly low. And also look at her MCV. The MCV range is lower as well. So you might think an MCV of 76 is low, but in fact, it's actually normal for a three-year-old. So just remember that. And notice in red, it's not nice when they pop up red, <laughs> but do familiarize yourself with the things that are in black as well, that she's got metamyelocytes and nucleated reds. So hematologically, we would call that a leukoerythroblastic blood picture. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's quite cool. It's one of the hematological favorite things. So she's mildly anemic and she's got the odd nucleated red cell and a bit of left shift. Uh, and the other thing that you notice in red is that you've actually done reticulocytes. Now, Mark had to show me that the reticulocytes had been done because I always look for them at the bottom because in our lab format, the reticulocytes are always at the bottom. It makes sense to put them at the end of the full blood count, the red cell parameters, but quite honestly, that's probably going to be one of my biggest messages to you is that reticulocytes are never done enough. So any new anemia that you have, you should be asking for reticulocytes. And the reticulocytes are super high. So I'll just give you a moment to think, what do high reticulocytes tell you? So basically high reticulocyte counts tell you that the patient's hemolyzing or bleeding. Now, clinically you've noticed it's jaundice, so bleeding isn't on the cards. And why would a three-year-old 
be bleeding, it would be obvious. And I would say three-year-olds tend not to bleed unless they've got a bleeding disorder or seriously injured or something like that. And notice the high bilirubin of 60. And you get an unconjugated bilirubin as well, which is terribly helpful. The rest of the liver function is normal, so the high bilirubin with the jaundiced pale child is going to be hemolysis. Hopefully you're all saying, yes, hemolysis, hemolysis. Then you have, what next? Why hemolyzing? A three-year-old hemolyzing. So you can have a little think about that. And this is where the blood film comes in. So those were just some things to remember. And if you go back to your algorithm, you've got a hadenormochromic normocytic anemia. And you can see one of the major suggested investigations is the reticulocyte count. And next on the list in your algorithm is a blood film review. So when you've got hemolysis, there are three things, three parts of the red cell that can be affected. One is the membrane, the enzymes, or the hemoglobin. Those are three things that can go wrong. So if you look at a blood film, you're going to be able to see those. And some of you may remember that if you've got G6BD deficiency, you get bite cells. If you've got hemolytic uremic syndrome or fragment hemolysis, you can see fragments. And of course, they're all the thalassemias which have target cells and all the rest of it. So it's really exciting looking at the blood film. What I notice when I'm teaching is that people, when I say, well, what does MCH stand for? What's MCHC? So just take a moment to think about whether you know what the MCH and MCHCE are. The MCV everybody knows, and the algorithm starts with microcytic, normocytic, and macrocytic based on the MCV. But the next line down of the MCH, that's the mean corpuscular hemoglobin, that's how much hemoglobin is in each cell. So if you've got a huge big cell, the MCH is going to be high. And if you've got a tiny cell, the MCH is going to be low. And then the MCH is the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration, which is like per unit area. Uh, and often if you've got spherocytes, for example, your MCH is going to be high because the hemoglobin's packed into a tight ball, if that makes sense. So really, you need to look at the blood film comment. The scientists do it. If it's a complex case, it'll come through to a hematologist, wherever you are. I'm sure you all have a referral mechanism for slides to go to a hematologist. And if you're in a hospital where there is a lab, like in Haura Lab, they would just love you going along and saying, I'd love to look at that film. And they would just love to show you and give you a little hematology lesson and engage and really look after your laboratory because they don't often see the patient. And if you went and said, oh, I've got this little, this pale three-year-old girl and I think she's jaundiced. You know, what does the film show? You're going to get satisfaction and so are they. So there's a question there, Lane, about whether yeah. rural labs can do the blood film. Oh, they will all, they, they should, unless they're a tiny, tiny lab. I think it, it does depend, but I would imagine, unless you've got a, just a little stat lab, I suppose it depends how rural. Um, that's a good question. I mean, Haura has got quite a decent sized lab, fair to say. There's no time frame in terms of the sample deteriorating that you yes, can't there interpret is. it. There, yes, there that would is. be the biggest it, it, issue. Yeah, it's probably 24 hours, but it's actually quite a simple thing to be able to make a slide, even if you can't stain it. So I don't know. You'll have to talk to your labs and see what the facilities are. I don't know how rural the labs go. So sometimes the labs, the people working there, depending on who's on, might have the skill set to look under the microscope and tell you what's going on, but may not have the, um, the lab might not be certified to write the comment, as would be the sure. case for yep. other yep. cell counts yes. on yes. other fluids. Yes. So sometimes yes. you can maybe get a, over, you know, a behind closed yep. doors, oh, these, this looks a little bit like so-and-so. But yes. Yeah. I can't write anything. And I guess, on the paper. and I guess that's really um, important if you're looking at a, a pancytopenia and they're blast there, 
that can give you a 24, 48 hour heads up, which can be super, super helpful. Yeah. We have this comment, they've noticed the high reticulocytes. And reticulocyte counts notice are presented in two ways, as a percentage, where the normal range is above 2%, or as an absolute, where it's above 100. So that can be a bit confusing when you get those two methods, and it's quite easy to calculate, and the automatic analyzers will tend to give you both, I think. And there you can see, looking down the microscope, there's ferrocytes. And there's polychromasia. Now, I don't know if you know what polychromasia is, but those are the sort of bluish red cells because they've got residual RNA. And that means they're young. So when you see polychromasia, even if you don't get a reticulocyte count, if you see polychromasia, then you're generally dealing with bleeding or hemolysis. So you can sort of shortcut there. So they said, consistent with hereditary spherocytosis. But can you think of some other causes that you can also get spherocytosis, maybe less common in a three-year-old. So Elaine, if you hold for two seconds, if anyone wants to put it in the chat, so I'm going to admit that my hematology is very, very minimal. Just have well, a little go. Well, the other question I wanted to ask you, Elaine, was, you know, we have in that breakdown of all the white cell counts, you mentioned about the monocytes and there's also basophils. You know, at what relevance and when are they relevant? We don't oh, need to ask that right now because I'm just <laughs> we've, like... we've, we've got a case coming up, that lovely one from Rarotonga. Okay, um, cool. That, that actually mentions the significance of basophils. And we'll hold that question for that case because there's a lovely illustration of white cells. There's a lot in that case that we can discuss the white cells. Do you think that's okay? Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Yep. No, no so one it, else it, knows anything about Oh, spirit. right. Okay. Oh, here's Roma, autoimmune hemolytic anemia. Well done. Well done. Yes. Uh, you can also, Roma. Yeah, good. Uh, sometimes post-splenectomy can have um, spherocytes, but usually with other, with other abnormalities. So basically, the two big ones would be autoimmune hemolytic anemia and hereditary spherocytosis. So I guess the next thing is how are you going to differentiate and what other Come tests on, are you going to do? Right, you're going to do, a, we used to call it a Coombs test, but it's a, a DAT for warm autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And that can be caused by medication. I remember having a case of a lady who went for some gynae procedure and she got put on a keflosporin prophylactically intra and post-operatively, she was unaware that she'd been given an antibiotic. She went home and she just became increasingly weak. And so she phoned the doctor and they said, oh, you must have an infection, gave her some water, <laughs> keflosporin. <laughs> and eventually she went to the toilet at night, cracked her head, went into the emergency department and her hemoglobin was 46. Wow. And her bilirubin was high and she was full of spherocytes. And that was a case of uh, keflosporin-induced hemolytic anemia. So medication is really important. What does DAT stand for now? That direct and anti-globulin test. Thank you. Yeah. So basically, that is looking for the presence of antibodies on red cells, for an autoantibody on red cells. And so it's an anti-antibody that makes the red cells stick together. And it's quite cool. So if you've got a blood bank, you can go and ask them to show you what a positive DAT is. I think these sort of things are quite sort of tangible and nice, really. That's what I like about hematology. I love the fact that I can actually visualize, you know, my medical school training, I just did hundreds of deaths and cross matches and coagulation tests and all these sort of things. They do less now, but it was super fun. Then if it is hereditary, um, hereditary spherocytosis is autosomal dominant. So, you know, like, who's your daddy? <laughs> One of the parents should have hereditary spherocytosis and quite a lot of the siblings. And you may get a history from them of like periodic jaundice. And when they get viral infections, the bone marrows turn off. So they're normally maintaining their hemoglobin by like a huge marrow drive. But when you get a viral infection, it turns off, so their hemoglobin drops precipitously. And that's called an aplastic crisis. And in hereditary spherocytosis, a viral infection that does that quite famously is parvovirus, I guess, which is something that's quite hard to. But any illness or infection 
can cause either a hemolytic crisis or an aplastic crisis. Uh, and they may or may not have a big spleen. It depends on the severity. They can be very mild to very severe needing a splenectomy, which you try and not do in a child. You try and leave it as long as possible because the risk of sepsis is so high. Mm. So you try and keep that going. Mark has a question for you, Elaine. Well, it's, it's sort of a question based on a patient, an experience that I had in GP practice where I saw a kid who was about 11 I think 12 actually coming in with a viral illness, same, maybe slightly jaundiced in his eyes, but said he often gets it when he's unwell and went ahead and did an HB that had dropped to, I think, 70 or so. Yeah, yeah, um, But absolutely. the reason I did the HB was because he had a postural tachycardia, so he stood up and his heart rate sort of climbed to 130. Yeah, yeah. But his resting heart rate, his resting blood pressure was fine. Yeah. And it made me reflect on you know we see people with an acute hb drop usually in the context of a big blood loss and they would have yeah. you know more like the signs of shock and a tachycardia and things like yes. that would be a bit yeah. more obvious because yeah. their yeah. blood volume yeah. itself is smaller whereas yeah. someone's acutely hemolyzing their blood's not effective but they're not lost any blood they're still the same amount of blood yeah so maybe but, but do they, we need to look acute, out for different they're, signs they're of the, no the, the acute acute drop of hemoglobin without volume drop is still really can be absolutely catastrophic and they'll feel absolutely awful and remember there's a lot of stuff for the kidneys to process and so you might actually even get hemoglobinuria uh, if it's that acute yeah so doing so, NSU might be able to screen for yeah, the hemolysis yeah, as well in the, yeah, in the yeah, office because yeah, that would be absolutely. quite useful as and well. remember if people are passing discolored urine there's a difference between hematuria and hemoglobinuria and then again you can go to the lab and you can look at the color of the serum <laughs> which is also quite fun yeah um this that chap ended up having an hb dropping to 60 and had two units acutely so yeah was, yeah think, yeah and yeah, by the way exact. if people are having a bit of a hemolytic crisis and things do give them folic acid in fact people with hereditary spherocytosis or any hemolytic condition should really have folate supplements because the demand is quite high. And just another interesting point here, because we're talking a little bit about iron, they'll often have high ions, high, high ferritins. And you might want to think why that might be. And Elaine, I just, just to finish that case, I wondered, was the ginger here a clue to some? No. No, not uh, at all. No, there's nothing. There's nothing in that. I just think it makes pallor difficult to tell because often they have that sort of Celtic skin of always having pallor anyway. Yeah. Is hereditary spherocytosis more common in certain no populations? No, no. Okay, great. Yeah, no, it's pretty ubiquitous actually. And as I said, it can be very, very mild to just being a thing down the microscope with perfectly normal parameters, or it can be very severe needing to be a splenectomy. And the reason why taking the spleen out works is because, um, I don't know if you remember, but cells have to squeeze through the splenic sinuses, and so they have to be that nice biconcave face. And when that's a sort of rigid ball, they don't get through the spleen. So taking the spleen out returns their lifespan to normal. Yeah. So should we go on to another case? Yes. So this, if you look at your algorithm, you can absorb the macrocytic pathway of the algorithm here. And because we've got a hemoglobin of 95, an MCV of 107, a white count of 3.9, neutrals 1.8, and a slightly high platelet count of 406. And this is really important. Although the neutrals are 1.8, and neutrals of 1.8 on their own are neither here nor there, in fact, you can see the normal range in this laboratory is 1.9 to 7.5, and really 1.8 is kind of neither here nor there. So you'll want to look at the previous cumulative bloods just to see whether that's a thing or not. And remember I mentioned the MCH? So can you see that's high? So now you'll know it's high because the MCV is high. So it should mimic the MCV. So a big red cell should have more hemoglobin, unless it's hyperchromic, which you can get as well. So it's good to look at both of those. And yay, 
the reticulocytes are done. I don't know whether Mark chose these cases just so I couldn't have a moan about no reticulocytes. <laughs> but for that hemoglobin in a 68-year-old, is quite low. And so if it's bleeding or hemolysis, the reticulocytes should be well over 100. Although it's in the normal range, it's inappropriately low. So then you've got to say, well, what's going on here? So if you look at your algorithm, you can see the investigations that we're going to do. And so you can see it's quite a short list of tests that you can target. And the list in the differential is also quite short. So somebody with fatigue and anemia, you're going to do those tests. And the first thing you want to do is to make sure they don't just need some B12 and folate. Oh, that's all pretty reassuring, isn't it? <laughs> Even by my standards. Now, just a little mention about B12. B12, people think the lab don't do a good test, but the B12 that you have in your body is two sorts. The, most of the B12 you have is just like useless storage B12. It just never gets off the couch. So it looks like it's doing a good job, but it doesn't. And then there's a little bit of what we used to call transcobalamin 2, and it's now called haptocorin or something. Beaver's round, like an Uber, Uber Eats, delivering small amounts of B12 very efficiently to everywhere. But when you measure B12, you don't know how much of the active Uber B12 you got and how much is just sitting on the couch B12. So I just think if you've got anemia and the B12 is less than 300, you should just give some B12 and see what happens, particularly in the elderly where your Uber B12 doesn't work so well. And you've got a folate there, which is plentiful as well. Yes, the level I use in elderly is 250. So yeah, obviously yeah. if that's coming in, I mean, it's oh, yeah, normal, no. isn't it? Yeah, so yeah, so 250, 300, I think it just depends what else you're not finding. Now, you see here, she's had iron studies, her ferritin's fine, her saturation's high, and maybe because she's tired, she might be taking oral iron, uh, because, I, yeah, that's something, I'll come to some other causes why that might be the case as well. Elaine, just, there was a question earlier about someone yeah. requesting if you could go through the iron panel and explain the significance of each one of those tests. Yes, I'm going as to. As a refresher? Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm great. Going, at the great. end, I've got, I've got a little two-slide thing on iron, which ho hopefully will help. Yeah, okay, so don't, great. don't panic. Don't, great. don't panic about that. That's coming. So protein electrophoresis is really important. I can't tell you how many myelomas get missed and it can be as subtle as a normal hemoglobin and a macrocytosis. And then if you put the clinical together, there's a bit of bone pain, the calcium might be a bit high, the renal function might be starting to go, or, or not. But if the B12 and folate are normal and it's in this sort of age group, you should really do a protein electrophoresis. If you've got more suspicion for myeloma, just jump in to do the serum-free light chains Please don't ask for Ben's Jones protein. <laughs> I'm really trying to can Ben's Jones protein in favor of serum-free light chains. In the laboratory, it's very labor-intensive. They quite like doing it because it's like an old-fashioned test that they quite like doing. But really, I haven't asked for a Ben's Jones protein in a few years. Although the guidelines, when you're treating myeloma, say you should do it. And maybe on diagnosis of myeloma, looking for it does it. But we're finding it just doesn't contribute to anything. So I would love to see Ben's Jones proteins shrivel away like the ESR has. <laughs> That's the take-home point, everyone. Yeah. Hope you've been listening. Yeah. So no Ben's Jones protein. Do your free light chains, which they've done here, which is really good. And they're normal. And just remember, if they're both up, it's probably because the renal function's a bit off. So you're looking for an abnormal ratio. And we get a lot of referrals with, oh, the Kappa light chains have gone from 27 to 42, and the Lambda light chains have gone up as well. And it really doesn't matter. So you don't really need to check both unless you've got really high suspicion. So what will put up the free Kappa light chains? So what gives you that, like you say? Uh, it's Well, that is irrelevant. This, the fact that it's in red is irrelevant. 
Okay, so it's the it, ratio it, that's it, the it's key. It's the ratio. You're looking for the ratio, yeah. Okay. So just because something's red, don't you hate it when people have access to the results and you spend hours explaining mm. every little thing's in red? Oh, why is my serum iron high? Why is my serum iron low? <laughs> yeah. I agree. So I agree. there's urine bends Jones down here. So I wish I had the skills to put a big cross through that. Um, there are other things. You can certainly look at your liver function, renal thyroid, all those sort of things. But those patients aren't often anemic. So macrocytosis without anemia might well be liver. So what you want to do is congratulate yourself for doing the reticulocytes and noticing that they're inappropriately low. And we'll just say all the other tests were normal. All the important tests were done. And then... When you go back to the blood form, you say, well, the neutrals are a bit low and there's a little bit of odd stuff going on. So if you can't find anything else, this is a symptomatic patient who may be a candidate for transfusion. She at least deserves a diagnosis. And so this patient did go to bone marrow biopsy and a diagnosis of myelodysplastic syndrome is made. Now, I could talk for hours about myelodysplastic syndrome. But just the take-home points here are that no matter what age the patient is, it's worth investigating. Please don't leave somebody who's 94 with a hemoglobin of 80 because she's old. I've seen quality of life transformed. I've diagnosed myeloma in people in their 90s and given them not an amazingly long life because they're coming to the end of their life anyway, but free them from pain, improve their thing, even if they just get the odd transfusion. They need to have the basics sorted out. They need to be offered a bone marrow. And before they get transfused, I think you've got to know because sometimes it's a case of just giving them some tranexamic acid to stop their bowel bleeding, stopping their dibigatran or whatever. So that's just one of my things. I really advocate for anemia in the elderly. I sing in a choir when I go to rest homes and they're there. I can spot the anemic ones and I just want to take them home and sort them out. <laughs> the remedy can be quite simple. Before we yeah, move on yeah. from that one, I, I guess one thing I could contribute there as well in terms of who does bone marrows, because yes, you know, yes. from our training, it's always been the hematologists and people live in places where hematologists don't come very often. And to my understanding, Elaine, you upskilled two of our rural hospital consultants, Tom Dawson yes. and Hannah yep. Lorne, yep. into yes. how to do yep. it. So yeah, we, and you know, in, we can in, all be qualified. Yes, you can. We do this for reasons that we find it really hard to accommodate all the bone marrows to be done. For a start, it's a long trip for patients to come through to Palmy. And then we had Kay Abraham in New Plymouth who did them for a while, but then just got too busy and lost her heart for it. And so because Harbour is that lovely sort of can drain from such a big circle and there was enthusiasm, we are very happy to have um, Tom and Hannah come to Palmy where we did a workshop for um, book five bone marrows in a day because it is something that does take quite a bit of skill. We also did that for Helka in Hawke's Bay as well. So it is something that can be taught, but we believe nobody should be doing a bone marrow without accreditation and sign off because <laughs> for a start, it can be very painful for the patients. The samples are generally awful, so it does need to be good. And for that, you need a good laboratory. You need enthusiasm from your laboratory staff as well. So thanks, Mark. That's a good point. Now, this is a really lovely case, and thank you, Dawn. For this case it was really good so this is a 74 year old lady she's tired and lost weight she's been feeling extra tired lately and this is not her usual self she'd normally go to the gym and now she can not walk much she's lost quite a lot of weight uh, and this might be because she's got a reduced appetite and of course uh, like a lot of times when people fall off the perch a little bit it's always the jolly COVID vaccine isn't it that gets the blame i just shortened the history because a lot of the excellent history that was there revealed nothing until examination of the abdomen which revealed a huge mass in the left hypochondric region extending into the right inguinal area so across the abdomen 
non-tender, firm, and about the size of a large grapefruit. And I couldn't, I don't know what what this lady looks like, but you must have huge grapefruits in, <laughs> yeah. in, in Rarotonga. Because, bigger than mine, that's yeah, sure. big, Bigger than, than on my tree as well. So it, it's definitely a large grapefruit. Or very um, small lady. Or, or, or a very small lady. Yeah, absolutely. And it, just a message here is always put the patient on the bed. The hematological examination is quite quick. So when you've got an anemic patient, you don't have to test their reflexes and their swallowing and all the rest of it. And so the hematological examination is check them for pallor, look for bruising, which they might not have faced up to, take their temperature, and then lymph nodes, liver or spleen. So, you know, that actually takes two minutes. And basically... It's lovely when patients come dressed for a quick exam. <laughs> Less easy when they've got layers and layers of clothes. Hey? Where so, do you feel for lymph nodes? Do you do, you know, cervical, submandibular, occipital, cervical, supraclavicular, axillary, groin? Yeah. Thank you. And again, once you've felt a spleen, you want to go back and make sure that there are no lymph nodes as well. And also, you should be on high alert here because she's lost weight, lost appetite, and previously been very fit. And she's in the age demographic where something like lymphoma could be a thing. So when you've got a left hypochondrial mass, isn't that just your dream is to feel a spleen? <laughs> uh, when we're doing exams, they always hit us up for some lymph nodes and spleens. We do still have some despite our superb treatment. So we have a few patients who get roped in for that. And it's quite nice if it's not super huge, but it's sort of like a hand's breadth below and they have to do a nice deep inspiration. It's really nice. So these are the essentials of her. She's got a big spleen, she's pale, and she's got weight loss. So how are you going to solve this problem? And obviously you're going to solve this problem with a blood test. Blood test. <laughs> I thought you were all going to say bone marrow, but no, we can confirm her pallor. And she's got a normochromic normocytic anemia. But you don't know that she has a normochromic normocytic anemia because here they're not giving another really lovely red cell parameter, which some labs take out because it just creates confusion. And we'll see if anybody knows what that other red cell parameter is. The harder crowd should know. Five, four, three, two, one, it's the RDW. People say, oh, RDW, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's the red cell distribution width, which is just a fancy name for what's the variation in the size of the red cells. Do they all look the same, like they're in the same class at school, or do they look some small, some big, some misshapen? Again, you can phone the lab and say, oh, by the way, what was the RDW? They will fall over. They will fall over. They'll think you're just the most amazing creatures on earth if you just ask them, what's the RDW? So we don't get that here. But apart from her anemia, her white count's high. So you want to then know what the differential is. And automated uh, analyzers are great, but they can also send you up the garden track a little bit as well. But the analyzers will tell you if they're not happy with the cells they're dishing out. So sometimes you have to wait a bit longer for the lab to actually do a differential. So there you have your diff. And if you notice with your diff, it's sort of, on the face of it, not hugely remarkable. And you're asking about the different white cells. So neutrophils are basically up with infection, inflammation, and so on. Monocytes are also inflammatory response, infection, inflammation. Eosinophils are up with, uh, the differential of eosinophils is usually reactive secondary to parasites, allergy, ATP, few lung conditions, skin conditions, uh, usually pretty obvious. But the big glaring one here, and this lab's unfortunate is things don't shine up at you, so you actually have to read, <laughs> which is really good for you. <laughs> the basophils are very high. And the total numbers don't seem much compared with the other blood count. But if you look at the normal range of 0 to 0.2, 1.3 is going to be make for a very exciting blood film. There are going to be loads and loads of basophils. And you've got quite a lot of immature granulocytes. 
So hopefully you know that immature granulocytes are. Come on, Mark, you have to help me here. I guess precursors to a lot of these cells, like once yeah, you yeah. up from neutrophils so and new cells of yeah, so, so what, I guess a, a stem cell, but one step down from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just a, a little refresher there. Below the mature neutrophil is a is a is a band. Mylos, my, mylos. Oh, well done, oh. band. Oh yeah, band. Metamyelocyte, myelocyte, promyelocyte blast. So you really want to know more than just immature grands because if they're all just bands, ignoring the basophils and eosinophils for now. Uh, that would be more consistent with infection. If you've got blasts and promyelocytes and myelocytes, that's usually hematological. So you really want to know. If you're looking with somebody who's unwell, a C-reactive protein is really useful here. If you've got a C-reactive protein of 200, the patient's going to be really sick, but then that would be like an infection. So with your differential, you want more than the immature granulocytes. You want it spelt out. You want to know whether they're blasts, promyelocytes, myelocytes, metamyelocytes, bands. I'm just repeating that just so that you can get them in your head. And if you've uh, got your phone, another device with you and you look them up, they're super fun. And again, the laboratory would love to help you. So this is where going back really is helpful. And it also makes you kick yourself for perhaps not noticing back then. You don't know what her circumstances were in July 2021, but she had high platelets. Now, in a post-op setting or if the patient's sick, that could just go by the by and be considered reactive unless you look at a blood film. So this was the diff back then, and you can see they've done a beautiful thing, and there's some myelocytes, metamyelocytes, and bands. So the more left shift you go, the more suspicious you get. Can you see the basophils were up then too? A smidge. But this is the time, and the neutrophils were up a smidge. So you really want to pay attention to this back then. And you'll see that the platelets had large and giant platelets. There was mild toxic changes, which might have been a bit of a diversion towards maybe having an infection. But can you see? Marked poikilocytosis. Poikilocytosis is different shapes of red cells. I always remember that P for shape. And anisocytosis for size is just the way it's easier to remember. But they reported some red cell fragments. And whenever you get red cell fragments and elliptocytes and all these sort of things, you really want to, and spherocytes, I'd love to see that film because this is an exciting film. And they thought this was consistent with hereditary elliptocytosis. The problem with that is that doesn't cause your high platelets and your large and giant platelets. So in this situation, they're just focusing on the red cell changes, and that's okay. I didn't put up the blood film from 2015 in the interest of time, but that also had a high platelet count. So you're looking like seven years down the track, you're dealing with a hematological disorder that hasn't had any attention. So no wonder the spleen's enlarged. So when you've got a high count, a left shift and basophils and large and giant platelets, it's going to be a myeloproliferative disorder. And it's very lucky this lady hasn't had a stroke or a heart attack or a pulmonary embolism in this time. And even if you've got limited resources to lower the platelet count and get the numbers right, even a little bit of aspirin can actually be really, really helpful in the setting. Now, the blood film is pending. I see it's going to Lab Plus in Auckland, and that's going to take some time. And just a little trick here that maybe you can get your lab staff to have a play with is to get them to take photos down their cell phone. It's quite a skill, and you need a, a steadier hand than I've got, but it's very easy. So, for example, in Hawke's Bay, when they have a new leukemic, they'll phone me at night and they will just send a couple of photos through to my cell phone and help me explain the blood count. And I can say, oh, this is a child. Those look like lymphoblasts. Just phone Starship and transfer, you know, start the process of transferring the patient to Starship. And then that means in the morning, the patient can be in Starship. Whereas if you wait for the film to get down to Dunedin or Waikato or Lab Plus or wherever, 
you know, it's amazing. I mean, I'm really lucky from Lisbon, uh, Taranaki, Hara, Wanganui, and Hawke's Bay, we have an overnight career service uh, and, and review slides. But if it's urgent, honestly, just uh, get your lab staff to have a plan, ask them if they can practice so that when it's urgent, they can just do that with confidence. That's what smart technology is all about. Mm. So the, tally house. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, it is amenable because everybody now has a smartphone, even in the most rural settings. Mm. Um, yep. You know, they'll have the internet and a lovely camera on their phone. <laughs> you know, my registrars used to do all my presentations by taking photographs for me down that. I now I've got a camera, which is much better and it's good for teaching, which is another thing. I do, I can do Zoom lab teaching from my microscope now, which mm. is quite good. Yeah, neat. Yeah. So basically, depending on your setting, a big spleen, weight loss and things can be like tropical diseases. So depending on where you are. In New Zealand, that would be extraordinarily rare, unless it was a new immigrant. But with those basophils and that left shift, chronic myeloid leukemia is really important to exclude. Now we've got seven years down the track. If this was chronic myeloid leukemia, it would have transformed to an acute leukemia and the patient would not have survived. So it's likely to be essential thrombocythemia, which is just the high platelets. And it's not just high platelets. I've seen gangrenous toes from the orthopedic surgeons where they've been treated for osteomyelitis. I've seen blue toes. I've seen uh, ulceration. I've seen strokes, heart attacks, a lot of mischief. Migraine headaches is the other thing. Somebody was going for hyperbaric oxygen for treatment of their headaches and their platelet count was only like 550. Put, put her on hydroxyurea and she's completely headache free. So that's another, just a little thing that I found quite useful. Hydroxyurea is cheap, accessible, and it'll reduce the spleen size. And it's probably worth trying in her, even although she's anemic, because part of that anemia, maybe who's tested her iron B12 folate levels? Maybe she's got other causes. Also, if you've got a big spleen, you get sequestration in the spleen and that can make the anemia worse. So certainly mm -hmm. worth that. And the other clue that you're looking out for on the blood film is the presence of teardrops. As soon as you've got teardrops in an anemia, you're dealing with a fibrotic bone marrow. And that can be primary, it can be the hematological myeloproliferative, or it can be metastatic. I've seen lots of metastatic cancer with teardrops in a leukoerythroblastic blood film and low counts. It can be breast cancer, prostate cancer, usually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Brilliant, Elaine. So we've probably got about 10 minutes left. Yeah, that's to... all right. So basically, these are just my anemia tips. Don't forget your reticulocytes. Check your iron B12 and folate levels and have a low threshold for replacement. Always worth a go because you're going to wait for a bone marrow. It's not going to muck up our bone marrow either. You know, you don't have to keep the patient B12 deficient to confirm megaloblastic anemia. We want that all sorted so we can say, this, this isn't B12, this is myelodysplastic syndrome. So have a play with your algorithm and adapt it. And I think it's there not to be on paper, but actually if you get it into your brain, your brain is way faster. And you can actually, instead of doing this while you're seeing a patient, start filtering. And it's just practice. The other thing is examine the patient and the other thing is when referring cases for a hematology opinion, have a go. Just say, oh, what I want to exclude is this. And I think what you'll find when you get the response back, you'll get better feedback and then you'll send us less referrals and then we'll have a life. <laughs> so this is all an investment to get, Absolutely. To, yeah, to get you just to do it. And I do sympathize that you've got a million specialties that you have to condense down and just... Yeah, I realize your library has to be paperbacks or pa pa paperbacks on a million subjects. Yeah. So just one little question on that in terms of yep. paperbacks, because we are out of paperback territory now. What I think intimidates a lot of rural practitioners is you get a blood film and the ones that say all these fancy words and then at the bottom of the diagnosis, great. But often you see all the fancy hematological terms without the diagnosis. Yes. Um, and then what the 
concern is, you know, I guess erythro, uh, Luca erythroblastic film, that's a red flag that we should pick up and act on. Yeah, but, but it could, you know, but, if, but if the people... laboratory should be sending that through to a hematologist for a comment. Okay. And if they're okay. not, you need to put with your next blood test or that one say, please refer that film to a hematologist for comment. Because okay. again, that saves a referral and to assess it as a film, it still mm -hmm. takes us quite a lot of time. We have to go through all the background. The other thing is, please put a little clinical detail on your form. Like these cases are wonderful because a lady who's like lost weight and got a splenomegaly is like a completely different kettle of fish to a routine health check. Or even if you put routine health check, but so, so often we don't know whether they've come for a viral illness or whether they've got sweats. And, you know, just like SOB, chest pain. Like it doesn't have to be like three pages. But honestly, like query jaundice, gold. I, you know, I'd really encourage encourage you to put something on the blood test forms. I wish this, I could give, give a chocolate fish for every time. It's a <laughs> I was just curious, Elaine, whether there's something like a, an online database or a website that people can use to maybe, you know, get some information about when you get a blood film that has all these terms, apart from Wikipedia, because well, it just seems unprofessional. Well, basically, I think you'll just get bogged down. I would just email me you're very welcome to i've got my email address at the end because i actually love helping that because i only have to do it once and then hopefully it's empowering and everything gets easier and better so i do a lot of screening for the iron deficiency pharyngects and i do it sort of without too much sweat <laughs> and it can be quite simple I think there's a lot of information, but I don't know if anything like really condensed. There are some lovely little hematology books that show blood films, but yeah, if I do come across one, I will share it. But I think you just get bogged down when you Google, don't you? Yeah. So we're just going to do a little bit on iron if you still got some energy. So basically, iron deficiency is easy if it's unequivocal, and that is a, a ferritin of less than 20. The problem is the gray zone ferritins. And that's why I'd encourage you to do full iron studies at the outset and with the CRP, because then you're doing it in one hit. I mean, if you've got a 16-year-old who bleeds for 28 days of the month and whatever, you probably don't need to. But particularly in the elderly where so much else is going on, you want to interpret your ferritin and the need for unreplacement in the context of chronic disease, heart failure and renal failure. So I guess in terms of interpreting iron deficiency, your ferritin of less than 20 is unequivocal iron deficiency. If you've got a ferritin that's under 100, but your saturation is low, less than 20%, so it's sort of the rules of 20 really, in Australia, it's 30, I think, but we're 20 here. If your saturation is less than 20, and if your CRP is high, you haven't excluded iron deficiency, and iron replacement is probably worth a go, particularly if the patient's got renal impairment or heart failure. And I think you'll know that iron replacement is, particularly parenteral iron replacement, is supposed to improve heart function quite significantly. So spare a thought for all your little 80, 90 and 100 year olds that you can actually give them a real boost and maybe they'll go tramping and, you know, round the block at least <laughs> uh, with, a, with a little bit of new joie de vivre. I guess parenteral versus oral iron you're supposed to declare that the patient is intolerant of oral iron. And really, oral iron is really cheap. It's convenient. It's resource easy. You know, all these parenteral irons are sort of blocking up the system when there's so much else occupying nurses and practices nowadays. So my little sort of take-home thing is just ask them to take one ferro tab a week and then say, well done. Try two now. You know, like, aren't you doing well? And... And there are often other reasons for the constipation and the things. They're often unhappy and tired and not eating all that well and everything. So I think if you coax them, and it's a bit like having a routine caesarean section because you couldn't be bothered to push, you know, like, and it's convenient because you get it on the day. 
it depends on the severity of the anemia and so on, but actually just think about that. And the other thing is don't just keep topping up without working on the cause. Sometimes, you know, a friend of mine just had anemia and got put on iron, felt fantastic, and then two years later had this enormous bowel cancer diagnosed. Mm. So you do need to work on the cause and keep looking for the cause as well because on the first pass it, it might certainly be missed. I mentioned checking your B12 and folate levels. And the other thing on iron replacement is if you do give ferinject, and there was a question around this, in fact it was a referral, they needed to give three or four iron infusions, and although the hemoglobin was 130, the ferritin was still on the low side, it was only like 30. And this was somebody who had a hemoglobin of 60, an MCV of 63, and a ferritin of less than two. Now, to replace that ferritin, you're not going to get it on 1,000 milligrams. And that other question about that discrepancy about 1,000 maximum and then 1,500 maximum. Per infusion, it's 1,000 milligrams, but that might not be the total dose you required. So if you think it's a severe iron deficiency, you can even routinely book them two weeks later for a second iron infusion. But to, if you've solved the problem uh, and they can go on to iron, you might only need one. So I always just think start with one, but have a very low threshold for saying, I don't think this is going to be enough, and I'm sure that's the cause of a lot of the relapsing iron deficiency, even if you've corrected the underlying cause. Does that make sense? Yes. Yep. Thank you. So that's all right. So you don't want to mask that. So just a quick thing on high ferritin. Interpreting iron studies is tricky. For a start, serum iron means nothing. So we still occasionally get referrals, please see this patient. The serum iron is seven, and then you look down and the ferritin is 450. And obviously the saturation is going to be low. And that's because the serum iron is low because it goes down in inflammation and infection. And it's sort of like a negative acute phase reactant, if that makes sense. And there's yep. a lot of diurnal variation. So ignore the serum iron, but do look at the saturation in the ferritin. If you've got a high ferritin and a low saturation, that can be anemia of chronic disease or in chronic disease, the saturation can be normal. If you've got a high saturation and a high ferritin, then I think you need to check the patient again when they're well. So say you've done this after an alcohol binge or they've had a viral illness or they've just been in hospital or had a blood transfusion, you don't actually want to panic at that point. You want to recheck things in the cold light of day and just consider fasting bloods. It just takes a little bit of the diurnal variation out. And when you are repeating it, check your liver function and include the GGT because I tell you what, alcohol has a big part to play in high ferritins. And you know, they'll say, oh, I don't drink much. Somebody says, I only drink 12 bottles a night. I've got a, a, a man who drinks like probably three quarters of a bottle of whiskey a day. He's a Scottish man and he's not about to give up anytime soon. <laughs> and so therefore you take his ferritin with a pinch of salt. You might know him, Mark. He's a regular tender for venesection because he does have compound hemochromatosis. There's a question in the list there, Elaine, that yep. comes up here, which is what's your normal duration between, um, say if someone comes in with a viral illness, has abnormal iron studies, that were a bit concerning with high saturation or say they had an unusual full blood count. How long do you normally wait to see that bounce oh, back I, to normal? I think four weeks. It's because your solution isn't urgent. And if in the meantime, especially, you can take an alcohol history and ask them in that time to address their lifestyle. And if you show patients their liver function and their irons and things, it does shock them somewhat into behaving a bit better. Absolutely. Um, and, and you yep. know what I say? I just say go for the 0% options because often it's a social commitment that nowadays is, is really easy. In fact, when I went to visit my daughter in London, I was the only one drinking at a lunch party she had. And they were all drinking 0% champagne, 0% wine, and 0% beer. I felt very uh, hedonistic with my alcohol consumption. And I thought, well, you know, it's lovely that there's those options now. So I think you're not in any hurry. Obviously, if their ferritin is 3,000 and their saturation's 100% and their liver function's abnormal, and they're not post-hepatitis or something, then you're going to do it. 
but the sort of grey zone area is between 500 to 1000 and you really need to look at your saturation. If your saturation is less than 45%, it's highly unlikely you've got hemochromatosis. Highly unlikely. And in fact, some of the recommendations say you shouldn't even look for hemochromatosis gene studies. You might do them and you might find that they're just heterozygous. And then persuading the patient that they're only heterozygous and their clinical risk is low, they become obsessed with their ferritin level. And sometimes we just get bullied into venesecting them, which is a shame when actually they should be dressing their lifestyle factors. The other big thing is fatty liver. Fatty liver is a very common cause. So basically, if you've got a lowish saturation and you in the gray zone, you're going to test them because a blood test is easier than arranging a liver ultrasound, isn't it? But you'll do it and they'll say echogenicity consistent with fatty liver. And it often goes with this sort of metabolic syndrome patients. You can sort of look at them from the end of the bed and just say, yeah, you've got a fatty liver. And they just need to get their lifestyle in. And I think that's the problem in general practice. Yeah, you've got so much lifestyle stuff to address. My guideline, I had that algorithm, which I'm sure you've probably seen. I still quite like that algorithm for management of the, hetero, uh, the hemochromatosis patients. But I've fallen a little bit out of step in that the, it's become a lot more permissive because the guidelines say people's quality of life in the studies was probably favoured venesection. And I think that's a bit, you know, like when you're bleeding on the battle, there's a sort of euphoria after being bled and a sense of well-being. And people will come and they'll lie on the floor with a ferritin of 34 saying, I need my blood, I need my blood off, I really need my blood off. And it's really difficult to persuade them otherwise. Okay. I've just offered my email address. I might regret that. (laughs) (laughs) You just may, you just may, Elaine. (laughs) But I am happy to help because my answers will be quick and simple uh, and, and pragmatic. Uh, I won't give you a dissertation on anything complex. It'll be like a, you know, a a three-step help plan. I do have algorithms on other subjects, which I can introduce with a talk at another stage, or I can just send them all to you. I think I prefer to do them somewhat in context, because otherwise, you know, without a little bit of background to their use, I find that they may not mean as much. But anyway, so... I can understand that, you know, some explanation of an algorithm is a lot more useful than necessarily, but they can be very good, like everything, they're good guidelines, aren't they, but they do involve them. And I don't know what you find about your health pathways, but some people find the health pathways a bit complex to navigate, depending on the subject. I haven't looked much at uh, the health pathways, but sort of medicine is becoming very algorithm driven. And I think basically it should just be a guide to your brain, really. Absolutely. And the more experience you get and the more you practice hematology as well, it sort of just becomes intuitive, like what the most likely scenario is. So good luck with your hematology, guys. <laughs> Absolutely, Elaine. You'll talk this evening when you've said, what would that be? And I'm like, oh, just sitting here looking extremely blank. So I must admit that I do remember looking up and re- trying to re- uh, remember the myelocytes, metamyelocytes and things. And I remember drawing pictures of them all and then the yeah, whole yeah, go through. Yeah, but it's yeah. now so distant. It's too long. Yeah. Too long. So it's completely but, but dropped now out of when my you brain. See, when, now when you see those film comments and you see occasional myelocytes, ciao, ka-ching. Just, I'll be like, Elaine, <laughs> I still don't remember. <laughs> um, but I'd like to say thank you very, very much to Elaine and also to Mark for helping this evening. Yeah, thank you for your cases, Mark. I hope everyone has a very good evening and thank you very much.